This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, some things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I am joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. Joe, as always, we have a lot on the docket. Sometimes now we're referring to the Supreme Court emergency docket, shadow docket as the rocket docket. I don't know if we can use that term, but what's on our what's on tap for us today? Ooh, on tap, mixing your metaphors. I was going to say something <laughs> about, uh, I see what you did there with that docket, Jessica. But thank you, considering that we are a law and politics podcast. Yes, and on our law and politics podcast today, we are going to discuss three topics. The diversification of the federal bench, the opening of the civil trial in the aftermath of the violence during the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we're going to talk a bit about a developing story published exclusively by Rolling Stone magazine that alleges that a number of Republican elected officials met with the organizers of the January 6th rally that devolved into the deadly insurrection at the Capitol. Let's start with the diversification of the federal bench. In a recent NBC piece, it says, quote, Biden is outpacing every other president since Richard Nixon in confirming circuit court judges. And President Biden himself tweeted just yesterday, that's on Monday, in just nine months, we have nominated more black women to the federal circuit courts and more public defenders to the bench than any administration in all of American history. And we're just getting started. So it sounds like a little bit of rah-rah cheerleading there. But the numbers shake out. I know that Obama was behind the curve in terms of nominating people to the bench. Trump did a lot. He confirmed 234 judges in four years. But Biden has confirmed 17 federal judges, that's six in the Court of Appeals and 11 in district courts in just nine months of being in office. So, Jessica, in terms of Biden, what's going on with this speed here? Why is he doing this? I think they get it. One third of the Supreme Court was picked by former President Trump. He remade the shape of the federal judiciary. We just heard he nominated hundreds of federal judges who were confirmed. I mean, that is absolutely astonishing. And we're talking about all levels of federal judges there. And I think Democrats, frankly, kind of woke up and they get that this is really important. And we all spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what will our legislation be with respect to climate change, immigration, uh, the budget, infrastructure. If any of those pieces of legislation actually pass and then they're challenged, it's federal judges who will make determinations about whether or not they will stand. And we have previewed the Supreme Court. We've talked a lot about the Supreme Court. Obviously, huge amount talking about abortion. Also, a lot of other issues that federal judges decide every day dealing with gun control, religious rights, freedom from discrimination, freedom of speech, money in politics. Uh, I mean, everything listeners that you care about, at some point, a federal judge will make a determination about that. And I think that's what's going on here with respect to President Biden. And let's not forget, Jessica, that that branch of government, the judicial branch, is unique in the way that the members of that branch are appointed by one of the other branches and confirmed by the third. So this may be a daft question, but what does all this mean? What difference does it make? Well, you know, what difference does it make, uh, which I I know because we talked about this before, what we really want to talk to the audience about is what difference does it make that these judges now look more like America, right? That there's a record number of women who are being nominated, a record number of minorities, a record number of public defenders. And the difference it makes 
in all of those situations is that it's really important that people who have a diversity of life experiences are making decisions that affect almost all of us at times. So we know from you know, every bit of social science and political science. So when you have people in the room who, for instance, have experience representing a criminal defendant, then when they become a judge, they're going to look at the criminal justice system with an additional set of experiences, with a different lens. When you have somebody who is a woman, who's a minority, and you're making decisions based on affirmative action based on issues dealing with racial discrimination, uh, gender discrimination, so many other issues. It's really important that we don't miss big things because we have people on the bench who have said either I've lived that, I've represented somebody who's lived that. I know I'm saying this in the abstract a little bit, but it's so important that we have people who don't all have the exact same life experience. There's nothing wrong with going to a prestigious law school, getting a really prestigious job, working at a corporate law firm, and becoming a federal judge. I know a lot of people who have that resume, and they're phenomenal judges and phenomenal human beings. And I think they would be the first to say, not everybody should look exactly like me and have exactly my experience. Okay, so who is, out of these people, Biden's most high-profile pick so far? I know you were talking about public defenders in there. Is one of those people a former public defender? Yeah, so President Biden has focused more on former public defenders. It used to be the case that we typically saw as the kind of feeder to being a federal judge, former federal prosecutors and or corporate attorneys. So maybe one of the most high-profile is Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. So Judge Brown Jackson was actually on President Obama's long list to be a Supreme Court justice. She's on President Biden's short list. She clerked for Justice Breyer, which could mean that we're going to have another situation of a former clerk potentially replacing her former boss. We, of course, had that with respect to Justice Kavanaugh replacing Justice Kennedy, who he clerked for. Um, She was originally nominated to the bench by President Obama. She was confirmed to the D.C. Court of Appeals just this last June. She actually replaced Merrick Garland. And what is she known for? In in my heart right now, what she's known for is a few years ago, she wrote that, at least in legal circles, famous opinion where she said former White House counsel Don McGahn had to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. And it was about whether or not President Trump had committed obstruction of justice. She had this 118-page opinion. She really slaughters in an appropriate way former President Trump's claims that his advisors were absolutely immune from being called to testify. She has this great line there where she says, presidents are not kings. And I remember, I think the morning after that opinion came out, I I was teaching an undergrad class and I said, okay, I know we were going to talk about X, but we're going to talk about Y for a second, because it was such an important decision and so important for explaining why the rule of law matters and why nobody is above the law. So that's, I think, his most kind of high profile pick so far. 
All right, Jessica, on a side note, I'm glad you used the word slaughtered instead of slammed, because when I see the word slammed or hear it in a podcast, what I think is that someone is trying to sell ad time in a news site. So, Jessica, can you tell us who else is on that list? Absolutely. There's some other legal luminaries on the list. Dale Ho, the director of ACLU's Voting Rights Project, has been nominated for the federal bench. He would be the only active Asian-American judge on the district court for the Southern District of New York. He's well known to a lot of people for working on cases that deal with the census or dealt with the census, and specifically former President Trump's attempt to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census count, something we talked about on the podcast about a year ago. And then just recently, um, Myrna Perez was actually confirmed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. This makes her the only Latino on that court and its first Latina justice since Justice Sonia Sotomayor was confirmed to the Supreme Court. And Perez was confirmed on a vote of 48 to 43. Obviously, incredibly important to have somebody who has a deep background in voting rights right now also says a lot about where our current Senate is that somebody with her background uh, had 43 senators vote against her. But um, I will say I'm glad that she's on the bench. Congratulations to her. And uh, we'll, we'll take the win. Uh, and that's basically, I think, our quick update as to what's happening on the federal judiciary. It's one of those things where it's so pressing, but you don't always, unless there's a news story, we don't always think of talking about it. Um, but it, I think it's so important that President Biden has decided to focus on this. And we will keep people updated. And certainly this group of people will be making some decisions based on the legislation that we see pending right now. Absolutely. Even a cursory look at the census results as they're coming out shows that America is becoming more diverse and our government and our judicial system should be more diverse as a result as well. So moving on to our next topic for today, Jessica, the Charlottesville civil trial. The civil trial began this week involving the far right white nationalist groups who staged the Unite the Right rally that was held just over four years ago on August 12, 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia. A 20-year-old man named James Alex Fields Jr., drove all the way from Ohio to attend the rally, and during the climax of two days of protests and counter-protests and civil unrest, he drove his car through a group of peaceful counter-protesters. He injured 35 of them and ended up killing one of them. That was Heather Heyer, a 32-year-old paralegal who happened to be in the crowd that day. The trial is trying to determine if the organizers of the event intended that the event would devolve into violence. So Jessica, can you please give us the background of the civil case here? Yes. So I think emphasis on civil case. We have seen some criminal prosecutions and the suit is based on violations of civil rights. Um, There are nine plaintiffs here, including an ordained minister, a gardener, a lawyer, some students, 24 defendants, including 14 men and 10 different groups. You already talked a little bit about the defendants, basically the people and groups who are considered to be the main organizers of this rally, protest, however we want to characterize it. Um, James Alex Fields Jr., the man who drove the car uh, that actually killed someone. And then, of course, Richard Spencer, the well-known white nationalist uh, who is, in fact, defending himself because he's had some trouble raising money for an attorney. 
And in terms of the groups, it's really white nationalist groups and neo-Nazi organizations. And that's the basic framework, but I know we're going to go into a little bit more detail. All right. So what are the plaintiffs specifically arguing here? So the plaintiff's argument is interesting here. They, I think, are upset on two different fronts. One, they wish that the government in Charlottesville had done more, that there be more criminal prosecutions, that there be more civil suits, actually, by the government saying, what you did here is really problematic, and in fact, so problematic that you violated laws. So I think part of the suit really just comes out of frustration from the plaintiffs that they have to bring it at all. And then in terms of their legal theory, it's interesting when they're relying on a law that we never used to talk about, and we've brought up a couple of times in the podcast, which is the Enforcement Act of 1871, commonly known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. It's a Reconstruction era law, meaning it's about 150 years old. It's really about trying to stop the KKK from denying people who were formerly slaves their civil rights. And it's a rare law because it allows private individuals to sue other private individuals for depriving them of their civil rights. So typically what you'd see is a private individual suing the government, let's say a police officer, for depriving them of their civil rights. In this case, it's private individual versus private individual. That's really what makes this particular statute unique. So in a way, it kind of looks like something we've also talked about, which is that Texas law, SB8, the very restrictive abortion law that allows private individuals to sue to enforce Texas's law. Obviously, that's different in the sense that when it comes to Charlottesville, we're talking about people suing for deprivation of their civil rights as opposed to people suing to enforce a restrictive abortion law. But Uh, some similarities just on a broad level. Now, one other thing I think we should mention about the plaintiff's case here, they have said explicitly, basically, we want to bankrupt this effort. We want to bankrupt this group. And we've seen this throughout our history where sometimes litigation strategy can be, let's stop the movement by stopping the flow of money. And So again, where does this come from? It comes with, I think, frustration from Charlottesville, from the government not doing more. And it comes from a desire to say, let's stop this movement in its tracks by making sure that it really doesn't have any funding to do anything. All right. So what is the defense strategy of the people who organized this rally? So the defense is really saying, look, we have a First Amendment right to freedom of expression, which of course they do. Um, but freedom of expression does not stretch to include all types of speech and behavior. And they actually tried to have this case thrown out um, before it even went to trial on the grounds that, look, we're, we're just engaging in protected First Amendment speech. The trial court judge was having nothing of it, cited to the KKK Act, the Ku Klux Klan Act, and said, no, this case can continue. It can move forward here. And, you know, the other thing they're saying is, look, if there was any violence, we were just responding to the counter-protesters. All right. Hold up here, Jessica. Wait a minute. They're claiming self-defense as a defense here. Where exactly does the First Amendment stand on this? Well, look, we have very robust First Amendment protections in our country. But as a judge said in this case, you don't have a First Amendment right to attack people. 
All right. Thank you for that clarification. Where else, Jessica, might we find this kind of legal strategy being employed? Does this mean anything for the January 6th prosecutors? Well, this is where we've also talked about the Ku Klux Klan Act. So there are some similarities between this civil case in Charlottesville and the prosecutions of the people involved in the insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th. It brings up a couple of themes, obviously, far-right movements, hate speech, violent actions, using social media to plan, and, of course, the Ku Klux Klan Act, as we just mentioned. So there are some parallels, which frankly says a lot about where we are as a country, that there are two major cases that deal with these issues of far-right hate groups, neo-Nazi groups, white nationalist groups, using open and more hidden social media platforms to plan this type of, potentially plan this type of violence. That actually will be a big issue in the case, Joe, which is whether or not there was a conspiracy to commit violence or if there was just a conspiracy to a peaceful rally that, um, that turned violent. All right, Jessica, and that brings us to our final topic today, which is a new piece published in Rolling Stone magazine entitled January 6th Protest Organizers Say They Participated in Dozens of Planning Meetings with Members of Congress and White House Staff. Now, headlines are meant to draw your attention, and that certainly got some people's feathers up here. In this particular piece, which I encourage everyone to go read, make up your own mind about what you think about it, there are two anonymous sources named in the article, both of whom are Republicans, both are involved or were involved in planning the rallies that took place in Washington, D.C. on January the 6th. As it is well known, the lame duck president at the time, Donald Trump, as well as other elected officials, spoke at the ellipse behind the White House at a Stop the Steal rally intended to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the 2020 election, as well as on the incoming Biden administration. Donald Trump had been peddling the false narrative that the election would be fraudulent if he didn't win since long before the election in November of last year, November of 2020. January 6th, as we all remember, is the day that Congress meets to certify the results of a given election. Usually it's a performative event. Donald Trump and his loyalists viewed stopping that certification to be a last-ditch attempt to remain in power, even after dozens of lawsuits last year failed to find any election fraud. Worthy of note is that these two anonymous sources were Trump supporters and that they remain so. The piece says, quote, Both of the sources made clear that they still believe in Trump's agenda. They also have questions about how this election loss occurred. The two sources say they do not necessarily believe there were issues with the actual vote count. However, they are concerned that Democrats gained an unfair advantage in the race due to perceived social media censorship of Trump's allies and the voting rules that were implemented as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Implicated in this Rolling Stone piece are Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who in the piece says, quote, someone who played a major role in the conversation surrounding the protests on January 6th also implicated as for having participated in or, this is an important distinction, had ranking members of their staffs join planning meetings for the January 6th rally are the following. These are going to be some familiar names. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Representative Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks from Alabama, Representative Madison Cawthorn, Representative Andy Biggs, and Representative Louis Gomer. He's from Texas. Now, Jessica, I want to be extremely careful about veering into the big, if true, territory. But we will keep an eye on this story 
It was announced also this morning that at least five former Trump White House staffers are speaking with the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. But I would very much like to know your thoughts on this story, Jessica. Isn't it amazing when complying with a subpoena is news? But here we are. And a lot of this falls under your point, which is if this is true, it's big. And it then starts to look like January 6th was, in fact, an inside job. And we obviously need to know what our members of Congress knew, what they intended, if they intended to help plan a peaceful protest, or if they intended for more, or if they suspected that more would happen. But it just should not be that members of Congress, the people who represent us at the highest levels who are entrusted to make decisions on our behalf, are also people who are not just ignoring the Constitution, but actively trying to subvert it and undermine it and know that people might be hurt in the process. People died on that day. So obviously there's more to come more needs to be investigated. And then if that investigation bears fruit, then we need to move forward on prosecutions. And uh, we'll talk another time, depending on what happens next, on whether or not we can expel members of Congress. So a lot to watch. Uh, Unfortunately, January 6th feels like our evergreen topic, but it's also, I think, very important that while we move on and talk about a whole host of other things that affect people every day, that we not forget that there are fellow citizens who try to, in my mind, overthrow our government and that we continue to look at that to make sure it doesn't happen again. So on that absolutely delightful and cheery note, Joe, thank you. Thank you so very much, Jessica. I always love hearing what you have to say about these things. And I love making this podcast with you. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson. Jessica, only say nice things to her or I'm going to come for you. Also, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In-Depth Day. You can find the show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a wonderful day. Hold up. 